You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom. And welcome to episode 85 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be looking at The Nom number 75, which is an extra-sized issue focused on the My Lai Massacre, which occurred in March of 1968. Since I've already covered this month, and I'll get to the, some of the historical background of the My Lai Massacre through the comic itself, I'm going to skip my usual historical context one more time and talk about Season 4, the final season of China Beach. Our song this time around is the song Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey by The Beatles, which is a track off side three of the White Album and would get released in November of 1968. The song was written in late June and early July of 68 by John Lennon and his then-girlfriend and future wife Yoko Ono. It has the longest title in the band's catalog, and it was recorded during the sessions for the album where the band was starting to break apart. In an interview, Lennon recalled, that was just a sort of nice line that I made into a song. It was about me and Yoko. Everybody seemed to be paranoid except for us two who were in the glow of love. Everything is clear and open when you're in love. Everybody was sort of tense around us. You know, what is she doing here at the session? Why is she with him? All this sort of madness was going around us because we just happened to want to be together all the time. Paul McCartney and others would later speculate that the song is about heroin, since monkey is slang for heroin, and although Lennon and Ono did at one time use the drug, the heroin connection in the song's title and lyrics has never been confirmed. Our book this time around is The Nom number 75. It came out on October 27, 1992, with the December 1992 cover date. The cover is by Herb Trimpey and Dan Panosian, and it shows a Buddhist monk sitting on a sidewalk covered in gasoline and holding a lit match. The title, it says, Burn. And the book's logo is not just one color that we usually get. There are red flames in the lower half and yellow in the upper half. Oh, and in the corner, there's a mention that there's an advertisement inside for the latest Dragon Quest game. This cover is a depiction of a famous moment wherein a monk self-immolated in protest of the war. The only thing weird about this is that Trimpey, whose art I've been enjoying in old issues of G.I. Joe's Special Missions, looks like he's channeling Rob Liefeld. I can't tell if that's because of Dan Panosian's inking or if Trimpey's style had changed to go along with the trends and artwork at the time, so I'm cautiously positive about it. The first page of the comic has a camouflage background and a table of contents because this is an extra-sized issue. It cost a whopping $2.25. 
All right, it's not too whopping. The average Dark Horse comic was 250 around this time, but this is probably the closest thing that the Nam ever came to something on the level of a giant-sized annual. I'm going to go through each of the stories individually, even though they're thematically connected, but I'll also give my opinion on the issue overall. I'll give creator credits with individuals as well, but I will say that editorial credits are the usual. We have editor slash top sergeant as Don Daly, assistant editor slash platoon leader as Tim Tuohy, commander-in-chief is Tom DeFalco, squad are Simi, Cindy Emmert, Patty Dotso, and thanks was given to Larry Hama as well as Bob Statler of the New York Police Department, NYPD. Before we even get to the first story, there is a forward by Lee E. Russell of the United States Army Combat Engineers, I-Corps, who was an advisor on tour of duty, casualties of war, Miss Saigon, and Jackknife, as well as the author of the book, The Armies of the Vietnam War. I'm going to go ahead and read this in full without my commentary to start us off. What is an atrocity? War is controlled violence, emphasis on control. Soldiers exist for the same reason as police. There are certain times when only force will serve. But the amount of force is something only the state can decide. In the ancient world, this concept didn't exist. Armies traditionally massacred, raped, and pillaged, burnt cities to the ground, seeded fields with salt, and drove whole populations off into exile. Today we find such matters shocking. We think we're better people than that. We'd like our lives to be neat, legal, not messy. And that goes for the wars we fight. On the morning of March 16, 1968, elements of two United States Army rifle companies entered Viet Cong-controlled hamlets on the Battengang Peninsula in search of a VC main force battalion. The Viet Cong, if any had been present, were long gone. But the American troops stayed to vent their frustration on the Hamlet's civilian population. What occurred in the next several hours became as much a turning point in the war as Tet. Seized on by the media, the incident became a symbol of American power gone berserk, of some fatal flaw in the national character. For more than a decade, Mi Lai would color the nation's perception of its military and its veteran sons. What had happened? The men who made up the line of infantry company in 1968 were an average of 19 years old. Their officers, mostly ROTC and officer candidate school graduates, were a few years older. They were a cross-section of American life. Hillbillies, farmers, immigrants, street kids, you've seen the movie, it's true. Most were draftees. The few who had enlisted had usually signed up for something else than to be in the infantry, but through the inexplicable happenstance that seems to occur only in the military had defaulted to 11 Bravo Light Infantry Weapons Specialist status. Their sergeants were scarcely older than themselves. Vietnam was a hard country, hard especially on the older non-commissioned officers who were forced to make do with rear echelon jobs. In the field, most squads were led by field promotions or graduates of the Army's instant NCO schools, shaken bakes, inexperienced and unsure of their authority. All of these people had been dragged out of civilian life one way or another, hurriedly trained and shipped halfway around the world to fight in a country they never heard of for war aims their own government had not decided on. The professional officer corps, quote, the brass, on the other hand, saw things differently as a chance for medals and promotion. 
So many ambitious officers clamored for command it was necessary to limit them to six months apiece, just to make room for everyone. For them, the way to the top was by driving their men hard, by having successful operations, by making contact. In the Nam, in the brush, the odds were stacked against the grunts. They were orphans, the original Lost Boys. The war fought along the coastal stretch of I-Corps was as hard as any in American history. It was a war of anger and frustration, fought not against uniformed enemy soldiers, but against snipers, mines, and booby traps. And all around were the people, the Vietnamese, the GIs had come to protect. Many factors separated the two. The incomprehensible Vietnamese language for one, cultural factors for another. And, by the nature of things, the Vietnamese the Americans encountered were prostitutes, thieves, pimps, and beggars. It was an easy stretch to think of the whole population like that. And on their operations, the Americans met other Vietnamese, peasants, sullen, passive, and indifferent. Under questioning, they had no idea how those bloody bandages got into their hut, or who that man was who just ran out. They were always inside or working someplace else when American patrols walked into booby-trapped artillery shells or into ambushes. And of course, none of them, nor their animals, ever set off the booby traps themselves. The Viet Cong had controlled the region since 1945. They made no distinction between military and civilian roles. Indeed, the goal of the communist political system was to organize society from top to bottom, front to rear, in the service of the party. What injured the Americans was good, what did not was treason. So civilians and communist-controlled areas routinely provided food, shelter, and information to the Viet Cong, served as bearers and guides, dug fighting positions, hid weapons and supplies, and cared for the wounded without ever departing from, quote, civilian status. Some of this service was compelled, some voluntary. It was a fine point, of course, maybe too fine for a 19-year-old mind. But in the end, all this was academic. The units which took part in Milai, Charlie Company, 120th Infantry, Bravo Company, 4-3rd Infantry, the Old Guard, the ceremonial unit that guards the Tomb of the Unknowns in Arlington National Cemetery, had been pushed too far. Their leadership had failed them. They had been taunted too long. But what they did was wrong. They should have known. They should not have acted. Most had the moral courage not to. A few did not. Who would put themselves in their place? War is the only atrocity. It says Lee E. Russell, U.S. Army Combat Engineer, I-Corps, Spring 1968, writing this in New York City, 1992. So let's get into the stories. Our first story is called Burn, and with it we see the return of a classic, NOM creator Doug Murray. He plotted this issue with Scott Lubdell, who around this time was starting his work on the X-Men, or would be anyway. Uh, he's on scripting duty. Your layout artist was Alex Trimpey. Herb Trimpey did the finishes. Phil Felix was your letterer colorist. The first several pages of this story reunite us with a couple of old friends, Clark and Martini from Doug Murray's run on the book. They're in the city and they're talking about what's been in the news recently was that Lieutenant William Calley is going on trial for actions in My Lai in March of 68. The massacre, if you're not familiar with it, took place on March 16th when Calley and his platoon entered the village of My Lai, which is in the province of San Mi. 
They were doing a sweep of the area and of the village, but despite not finding anything and the only American casualty being a guy who shot himself in the foot, they shot and killed 347 people. And I should point out that I got this number from Wikipedia. It's listed in the official U.S. counted totals. If you count nearby my key, the number is much higher. Vietnamese government estimates also a number in the 400 to 500 range. After this was all over, by the way, they burned the village. It would take about 20 months for the details of the massacre to come to light in the public. The guys talk about how there had been an inquiry into the massacre, but the army determined that Callie and his men had done nothing wrong. In the course of their conversation, Martini and Clark talk about how there was an army photographer there that day who took several rolls of film who would eventually wind up holding onto them for a year before he finally sold them. Clark passing the newspaper stand, gripes about how Callie's sentence was 20 years and it was reduced to 10 and then he was pardoned by Richard Nixon. As they walk away, a monk grabs the newspaper, sets himself down on the sidewalk, and douses himself with gasoline while the two men head to a bar and talk about the legitimacy of Callie's actions. Martini asks Clark if he would do the same if he were in that situation, and Clark says that he can't say because it's such a unique situation, but he does flash back to what I believe was one of the issues with Alarnik as lieutenant. Outside, the monk continues his preparations. As the men talk, they notice a crowd gathered outside of the restaurant, and they go outside. The monk, who is doused in gasoline, is waiting to make his move. Clark laments that the guy is going to destroy himself, and as they watch him set himself on fire, Martini says, No one wants to see it. That's the whole problem with the Nam. No one wants to see nothing. It's funny, isn't it? These monks are more political statement with a single match than we manage with our entire system and military justice and our peace rallies even. But he's destroying himself. And we're not. Where war have you been fighting? You read the papers, America is a country tearing itself apart over Nam. I mean, geez, the whole deal is a giant scar on the earth. Somebody crosses an imaginary line in the dirt and two guys are either on either side are mortal enemies? You ask me, these monks are the only honest people in this mess. Nobody in America wants to take the blame. Not Cali, not the officers above him, not the country he was defending, not even the president. Nobody's to blame. Nobody did nothing wrong. Like I said, it's not that it didn't happen. It's just that it doesn't matter. People will point fingers and cry and protest. But in the end, the My Lai Massacre and William Cali... It's so much smoke and flame, just like our friend there. It'll eventually burn itself out. I do find it interesting that after all this time, the series does a full issue about me lie. Uh, the topics come up in past issues. For instance, back in Doug Murray's run, there was a journalist talking to Ed Marks in a diner and asking him about the massacre. And if you remember, Ed had to explain to the guy the difference between the various units in the army. But for the most part, me lie has been on the fringes of the book coming up in the context of other moments, and never really being directly shown. Of course, that was a while ago, and here we have Doug Murray returning to the book with Scott Lobdell, who, like I said, around this time was writing Excalibur. Um, a quick check of uh, 
Mike's Amazing World actually shows that he wrote his very first issue of Excalibur uh, this month. That was the first issue of Excalibur I bought. Um, but then he'd go on to write X-Factor, some other mutant books, and if I may whine and moan a moment, he's the reason I dropped the Titans when the new 52 started. Anyway, Lobdell on Murray isn't half bad. I like seeing Clark and Martini here. The conversation they have provides us with a really good primer on what happened at my me lie. And I also like the juxtaposition of Callie ordering the slaughter and subsequent burning of an entire village and the monk's self-immolation protest. And while I don't think that Murray and Lobdell are justifying anything that Callie did at the time, Martini's point about how Callie was taught to kill and he killed is one that I think winds up being more condemning of the lieutenant's actions than Clark's disbelief and disgust. While they're sitting in the bar, Martini asks, What are you suggesting? We all start following only the orders we want to follow? Chain of command won't work like that. You let guys pick and choose what orders they obey, and you'll lose more men and more battles and more wars. The Nam ain't confusing enough for you. It's an almost too simplistic way of putting things, but Martini is trying to put it in perspective for an obviously upset Clark, and on some level add a layer to their conversation that I do miss about the original run on this book. While he did what he could to avoid politics, whenever the more politically charged aspects of the war came up, Doug Murray did his best to keep some perspective and present things as they were, at least from where he was sitting. Now, Martini at the end of this story is definitely way more pessimistic and sounds almost like the beginning of an existential dilemma. He's not condoning anything Callie did at Milai, nor is he condemning it. He's asking if any of our outrage really matters in the end. I'm sure that a number of people who have spent any time following politics or protesting do have these thoughts, and it is tough to consider that what you do, or your personal outrage, can be all for naught. So as much as this story serves to get us into the issue and look at the events of the My Lai Massacre as a whole, it also gives us something to think about as we move forward. The art at this point isn't too bad. Both Trimpies are doing workman-level stuff, and our two characters look like they did back in their appearances during Doug Murray's run. I kind of wish I would have seen Herb Trimpey drawing with the same quality he'd been drawing when he was the regular artist on G.I. Joe Special Missions in the late 80s, but unfortunately, that's not the case. On to our second story, which is a stateside story. It's called Old Ghosts. The creative team for this one is the one we've had so far for the stateside stories, and that is Don Lomax's story, Mike Harris pencils, Jimmy Palmiotti inks, Phil Felix letters, and John Khalees colors. We open on a radio station where small Paul Thomas, a nighttime radio DJ, broadcasts with his engineer, Russell. He's taking calls, and he says he's going to spend most of his time talking about the atrocities in Vietnam last year, which means that this would take place in about 1969. The first caller, Butch, says something about pulling troops out and nuking the entire country. Paul cuts him off. The next caller suggests that the citizens of Vietnam just go away until the war is over, which is ridiculous because it's, well, it's their country. The next caller is another vet, and he talks about how the North Vietnamese massacred even more people than those massacred by the Americans at My Lai, and finishes with, there's enough blame to go around. Paul takes a coffee break, and his producer refers to him as Thomas, warning him to be careful with the coffee this time, and if you need a little recall here, our DJ is Thomas, one of the original troops from the first 12 issues of the NOM, the one who was a complete klutz. 
Thomas goes back in the air and he takes a couple more calls, finally getting one from someone named Sandy who asks, why do you think it went so wrong? I mean, the war started with such lofty ideals. And Thomas replies, well, let me tell you a little story, Sandy. There was once a new struggling country with small, but with courageous people and a dream for the future. Across the ocean, there was a more powerful country with a much larger, better trained, better equipped military. This larger country set up a puppet government and literally ran roughshod over the population, not recognizing the legitimate wishes of a large portion of the citizens. The puppet government didn't allow any dissension, and the common people were allowed no voice at all in their future for this powerful country across the sea, said it knew what was best for them. Then war broke out. The smaller, less equipped country fought long and hard. It was a guerrilla war, ragtag civilians against the most formidable country in the world. But you see, the guerrillas were fighting for their very homes, not the ideals of a government far away. Soon the country across the ocean became demoralized with large demonstrations against the war. After a long and bloody war, the colonists drove out the English out of what was to become the United States of America. The parallels are frightening, aren't they? Except in Vietnam, where are the Tories? He takes another call after that, someone who wants to prosecute the president for war crimes. Then he cuts to a commercial and promptly spills coffee on his console. I won't say much about the art. Uh, I've been hot and cold in the Harrison Palmiotti stuff. Here it works, especially since the challenge for Harrison Palmiotti is to make what is a stationary situation look dynamic. Thomas is sitting behind a mic for the entire story. He's talking to people who aren't physically there. So they have their work cut out for them. And they do that well, using different angles to convey emotion and a variety of facial expressions as well. I guess my only criticism of the artwork is that Russell, Thomas's producer, kind of looks like Luke Cage with the afro and the open-collar yellow shirt. But it's not enough to be distracting because he's not in enough panels. What Lomax does with this story is take what Doug Murray and Scott Lobdell did with the previous story and make the conversation even more complex, pointing out that there is more to what went on than just what you or I would have read in a history book by the time the story was published. And to peel back the curtain, I knew pretty much nothing about Me Lai at this point. I wouldn't take American history in high school until the 93-94 school year. And I was fortunate to have a really great social studies teacher. What he did was instead of moving chronological through history, you know, starting with um, Jamestown and moving as far as you could get toward the modern day, he took the Constitution and he used it for the basis of our studies. So... Um, we we're looking at the past 217 years or even further back, and we we're looking how the different pieces of, of, of history applied to the different pieces of uh, the Constitution, our country's philosophies, and our country's laws. And it was a unique perspective. It allowed us to focus more on stuff from the past 50 to 100 years than retreading the same ground that we had in the 7th and 8th grade social studies classes where we had gone through all of American history over the course of two years. And I'm not saying that I have anything against studying the American Revolution, but having learned so much about it, uh, being from New York, you're in one of the areas that was part of that revolution on a big scale. Um, I guess in the way that, that my wife uh, says that she learned a lot about the Civil War because she grew up in Virginia. But 
I was grateful that we'd spent time on things like Vietnam, where and we little looked a little more in depth, and we looked a little more in depth at westward expansion. It gave me a greater appreciation for our country's history, and made me want to read more, as opposed to just be like, okay, yeah, I know kind of the big things, and then stayed ignorant after high school was over. So when I look at this, I flash back to when we were learning about My Lai in class, and how we learned that it was a massacre perpetrated by American soldiers, which it was. And Callie deserves the condemnation that he gets, if I may editorialize for a moment. But what Lomax is doing here is adding more complexity to the textbook I view, which I did get in high school, despite my great teacher, as well as having us try to gain some perspective on the pressure the soldiers themselves are under. Lomax himself is a Vietnam vet. Much like Doug Murray, he's speaking from experience when he speaks through his characters, and I think that is why he does not come off as sanctimonious or too preachy in this story. Oh, and I do like Thomas spilling the coffee at the end of the story because that's what he does, and it's his character, and I, I was hoping for that, actually. Anyway, I'm going to take a quick break. When I get back, I'm going to have the next two stories, so stick around. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Lori Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And we're back with the last two stories in this book. This third story is another stateside story, but with a slightly different creative team. Uh, Don Lomax is still writing. Phil Felix and John Calis are letters and colors. But this time, art is regular nom artist Wayne Van Sant. This one is called Tragedy, the My Lai Incident. It takes place in an inquiry between Army Brass and a Sergeant Ronard Haberly, an Army photographer who is at My Lai. They recap the events of the massacre and ask him about his role. He says that he has several rolls of film and then begins a slideshow. He shows the chopper landing, soldiers approaching villagers, and offers up the fact that these were basically peasants on their way to work and unarmed ones at that. He then goes on to show pictures of the massacre and describes what he saw in just as graphic detail. The army brass asks how many killings he saw. He says 50 and hands over the slides, hearing that this won't necessarily get him off the hook. He then goes home and we get a recap of the consequences of the Milai massacre. Charges are eventually filed against 13 officers and enlisted men, charging them with war crimes for their participation in the brutality they visited on the village of My Lai for Republic of South Vietnam. 
The black eyes that the Army, United States Army suffers takes a long time to heal, and the American Division earns the dubious nickname the Butcher Brigade. Of the 13 soldiers charged, only Lieutenant William Cowley is found guilty. He is sentenced to life in prison. Ironically, Vietnam veterans and the military demand the harshest penalty for Cali, while the peace activists send a cry for compassion, saying Cali is a scapegoat for the military elite. Yielding to the public outcry for clemency, the Secretary of the Army reduces Cali's sentence to 10 years. He's paroled on March 19, 1974, and Sergeant Ronald R. Haberly is never charged. Again, Lomax is giving us some much meat of perspective, and what I like about the last page is how he makes the point that there was sympathy for Callie from peace activists who saw him basically as a patsy, a tool of the people who were really planning and committing the atrocities of war. Considering that their anger was often directed right at LBJ or Nixon or Kissinger, that does make sense. And here we are back within the confines of the military as opposed to with veterans and civilians. So we're getting multiple points of view and a balanced perspective throughout this issue. The choice of having Wayne Van Sant, who is really at the top of his game at this point in his run on the series, is excellent because this story is played straightforward as almost a matter of historical record and Van Sant has always proven to do that storytelling very well. I don't have much to say here except that I feel that we are moving along pretty well from the immediate discussion of the massacre to the effects it was having at home to the examination of it and when we get into our next story we'll get the verdict in our last story which is another stateside story and it's called verdict our creators are as follows don lomax's story herb trimpy pencils michael higgins inks john Calise colors letters by dave sharp in the trial of this magnitude, there are always leaks to the press. The word is that a verdict about to be announced in the court-martial of Lieutenant William Cowley, who is charged as a conspirator in the senseless slaughter to nearly 500 innocent civilians in the small village of My Lai, South Vietnam, and the specific murder of 22 unarmed individuals on March 16, 1968. A news carrier heads up the courthouse steps with the press itself running behind him. He trips he's caught by Sergeant Pokalau before he falls down. Pokalau notes that the press is fighting with one another to get the Cali story and our paper carrier is confused by the way he doesn't necessarily want to follow along with the war and then compares it to murder, also pointing out that the people on the streets die each day and they don't seem to be as obsessed, as obsessed with it or paying too much attention to it. And while they're talking, two members of the press engage in fisticuffs over the story they're covering. Sarge is asked to escort Callie to his car, and the kid asks Sergeant Poklau, When I get older, you think I'll understand things like this better? Probably not, Poklau replies. Story's very short, but oh, man, the art. The art on this. I have serious respect for Herb Trimpey. I've seen this art numerous times over the years, and this is the worst I've seen. It, it looks like Brigade or Blood Strike or one of those other image books put out by Extreme Studios in the early 90s. And oh, There's a lot of stiffness. There's a lot of yelling. It just doesn't work, which is too bad because the story isn't that terrible. I think that here you have Pokalai who's gruff and lovable as the Sarge he's always been, talking to a kid, and then in some way it's Don Lomax's way of talking directly to the audience, which at the time was made up of kids teenagers and well 
some adults, but also people the age of the kid in the story. And here the perspective is that of youth, the kid who is seeing the world from a very black and white place, and Pokolau does what he can to elucidate on the shades of gray that can be found within the issue. And to his credit, the kid understands a little more, and to Pokolau's credit, he shows the frustration that comes with age. Now, I don't know if you necessarily need this to be Callie's sentencing. You could have had this in a different setting with the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, telling us about the sentencing, and then a conversation gets going just as a result. But the journalists fighting one another provides us with a little bit of comic relief, and I guess Sarge doing his job is a way to bookend the issue because of the way that Martini and Clark talk about Callie following his orders and what you do when you have to follow orders and etc. in the first story. If I'm going to give the nom number 75 a full quick review, I have to say that for a special issue it served its purpose well. It took a notorious event from the war and it looked at it from several different angles while giving us an opportunity to revisit old players from the series whom we haven't seen in a while. And even though some of the artwork wasn't so great, most of what we have showed us that even though the series was getting long in the tooth, and if I'm counting, we have about 9 or 10 issues left, there's still some gas left in the tank. Now, there is a letter column this month, so I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and do it. And we start with an editor's note from Don Daly and Tim Toohey that says, The events at Me Lie and their aftermath were controversial. Consequently, this retelling two decades later will elicit a mixed reaction from you, our readers. Some of you will hate the issue. Some of you will feel angry. Some vindicated. Still others accused. Our hope in presenting is to take the admittedly murky account of what transpired and to use it as a jumping off point for a dialogue. We felt that this was the best way to deal with Milai, to explore the issues without loading the arguments in favor of any of the many positions and to allow you, the reader, to form or even reform your opinion. Milai, not a very upbeat issue of the NAM, but we felt that Milai was too important an event to be glossed over or ignored. Please write to us and let us know what you think. So we have one, two, three, four letters or so this issue. We have uh, Robert Van Wagner from Tampa, Florida, um, who likes the book and wants to see it, it wants to see it keep going on. Uh, Doug Curtis, who's a 13-year-old from St. Louis, uh, thinks that the F4 Phantoms would be a great topic to cover. They think that we never know what's ahead, but that's a good idea. Jonathan Dedman of Great Neck, New York, uh, says that he's an avid fan. He loved Operation Chicken Lips, and he says it's short story arcs, which are tightly drawn and really well plotted. That's that's what he's seeing here. It's so much better than just coming up with the same old story. And uh, he said it would be great if you could keep the uh, creative team together, and they say we agree with you. As you already know, by this issue of the NOM, the team that brought you Operation Chicken Lips is still with them. It's an explosive crew you want to see as they cozy up to the NOM and continue to bring us action-charged story arcs from the good and not-so-good era of the Vietnam War. And then uh, Kevin Hayes of Coral Springs, Florida, 
says, for the last few months, you have been having different unconnected stories. And while all the stories and artwork have been excellent, I think you should start over again. This time you should stick with one division again and follow another greenie just in from the world through his tour in the Nam. There are still ideas that weren't included when Ed Marks still arrived, first arrived in the Nam. Also, I would like to know when the Nam series will end. Is it true issue 100, is it? I really hope not. Th- second, I think you should show the problems the vets had after the war, including becoming homeless, drug use, and the way they were treated on the streets of America. Your comic has shown virtually every aspect of the Vietnam War, and I don't think you should leave out the most important part of the Vietnam veterans' lives when they came back to the world. This comic is more than just pictures and words. It is life for vets who can't speak for themselves anymore. Those are the fallen heroes in a black marble wall. Uh, the editor's reply says, there are no plans to end in the nominee issue 100. Kevin, where did you hear that? We're going strong and have a number of hot ideas ready to go to stick around. And he says, now the hard part attached to your letter, Kevin, you sent us a note. We're hoping printing it will help. My uncle, Lieutenant Corporal Bruce R. Hayes, was in the United States Marines in 1968. He was killed on May 29th of that year. I would like to find any Marine in the 3rd Marine Division who was located at Quang Tree around that date who knew him. I would like to know what really happened that day. If there are any readers out there who were in this outfit or know someone who was, please contact Kevin at the above address. Write us here at Marvel. Our compassion goes out to you, Kevin. Good luck in finding the truth. Uh, there's no nom notes this issue, but there is a box uh, that shows the cover for issue 76. Let's go ahead and take a quick look through the ads. Um, there are several. I'm not even going to um, do the whole thing, but there's several teaser pages from the front cover all through the book all the way to the back cover for the Dragon Quest game. Um, it's a TSR role-playing game, I believe. We have we have the, the blurb on the cover. We have Beyond Video, Dragon Quest, the new game for real heroes in search of adventure on the inside front cover. You, you flip through uh, into the book and you have... Um, basically, they're trying to push essentially cards and figures and stuff it's uh it's like a actually it's more of a big board game that's a little more complicated so it's like a i don't think they call these tabletop games it looks like a combination of board game and role-playing game if i'm being completely honest and i think do this really quickly that is it's the only major ad in the book there's a subscription ad that has no characters on it just a bunch of gifts that has some christmas specials on it because the in the last page of the book which um talks about like you know picking characters and taking cards and everything and has these kids looking like all excited and shocked and everything one kid has like a crazy kid mullet it's like you can see the hair flying out of the back they all have these expressions like they've been given a surprise prostate exam or something i don't know one girl there's a girl in it she has a scrunchie uh the inside cover has back cover has a ad for it featuring the box and then the back cover has want to be here a searcher real adventure find out inside there is a bullpen bulletins this month stands on a soapbox about talking about um how 1992 has been the year of the spider it was spider-man's 30th anniversary uh, and they're celebrating all those things, and basically he's giving a rundown of what's going on with the 
Spider-Man stuff, there's a Rick Parker and Barry Dutter bullseye cartoon where a big adult wearing Spider-Man mask and Spider-Man t-shirt is trick-or-treating and the parents of the house are saying, this is the sixth time this kid has come by. Uh, and then in the bullpen bulletins, we have, let's see, um, it's election day and they're encouraging people to vote. And it is the 1992 uh, presidential election. If you don't remember that, that was Bill Clinton winning against uh, who was then the um, incumbent president, George H.W. Bush. And H. Ross Perot ran as a third party candidate and and had a little bit of an impact. Um, And they're talking about the Marvel. And then they go on to talk about the Marvel 1992 Corporate Challenge. The Corporate Challenge is a series of three and a half mile races. Of three half mile races every held every June, in which companies all over New York compete to see who has the fastest workaholics. Um, Danny Gonzalez finished one of the races in 21 minutes. Then you have Bernadette Ayala. Oh, it's th- it's a three and a half mile race. Um, Bernadette Ayala of the manufacturing department, Mary Sprouts of the finance department, and Don Daly and Gled Herdling also finished pretty well. Uh, the Marvel softball season is going on. They had a three-game winning streak, including a victory over Billboard magazine, which they had never beaten before. Uh, But DC beat them, and it says the DC-Marvel retro rivalry is now tied at one game apiece, with one more left to play between our two companies. One thing is for sure, the ultra-athletic DC team sure knows how to get the most out of a bat. Uh, And they talk about how Rick Parker and Barry Dutter have these cartoons, which I guess is why that cartoon is there. And they're saying, if you really want to treat your neighborhood monsters, don't give them candy. Give them Marvel Masterpiece trading cards. And there you go. The border borderline blather has all these like random phrases. I guess this kind of replaces the coolometer. So we have suburban urban nomads databases, zodiacal procession, the final cut, twelve step programs, found poetry. Bungee jumping injuries, collective unconscious, democracy, cutting to the chase, regional accents, biodiversity, escape clauses, Olympic triple casts, fashion statements, quality of life criminals, ICE-9, ex-chiefs, conversion experiences, Roshi's limit, dyssynchronous couples, in-your-face, unplugged rock stars, lustration, clinical detachment, soundbites, perceived value. And I had to rotate the book in order to say that. Anyway, I'm going to rotate some ads in here. Stick around. (laughs) That's a terrible segue, but I am going to drop a trailer in here. And when I get back, I'm going to finish my coverage of China Beach with the final season, which is season four. Stick around. Do you think of yourself primarily as a singer or as a poet? I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. 
This time around, I'm going to wrap up my coverage of China Beach, talking about season four of the show. This was the final season of the show. Uh, it began airing on September 29th of 1990, but it finished airing on July 22nd of 1991, and that is because it essentially got canceled about nine episodes into its 17-episode season. Um, that met, that was because um, after a pretty, you know, like I said, the show was a, a critical darling, but it was relatively low rated. And that meant that it bounced around in its time slot here and there, especially over the course of the last couple of seasons, over the course of all four seasons, especially the last couple of seasons. I believe that it was put on a Saturday night in um in the fall of 1990, which if you know anything about a Saturday night, it's where you bury a show because nobody's really, really going to watch it. Uh, uh, although at this point, that's the truth now, at this point, um, the Golden Girls was still airing on Saturday nights, and that was appointment television for quite a lot of people. So it's very possible that ABC thought that this might draw some of that audience, but at the same time, they also probably were looking to cancel it anyway, and they wanted to at least give it a chance. Um it returned to air on June 4th of 1991 and went all the way through the summer. They were essentially burning off the rest of the episodes because there were only about eight, eight episodes or so left. But I should note that the series finale, which is listed as two parts in Wikipedia's page, was aired as a two-hour series finale. So it's a part one and a part two, but it is one one particularly long episode so like i said season four it only has 17 episodes as opposed to the 22 that we got for season three um and we're gonna get into a little bit of that and actually what i want to do is start by reading uh what john what john sackert young says in season four's dvd booklet um usually i save stuff like this for the end of the season coverage but I thought that this would be a uh, this would be a good starter. So he says in his note in here, in the last season of China Beach, we ripped up the calendar of the lives of our characters. We broke through time and moved back and forth across twenty years. It was a groundbreaking idea for television for a television series. It was daunting, exciting, and liberating. 
The series had begun with Colleen McMurphy in the fall of 1967 during the last days of her first tour. By the end of the third season, we have moved from 1968 and the much-changed war after the Tet Offensive and into 1969. We then had the idea of stepping backwards. What were our characters like when they first arrived in Vietnam? How were they different? How had they changed? Writer Carol Flint captured it wonderfully in a highlight episode, FNG. Remember that was season 3, episode 20. Um, I mentioned how that would have been a really great season finale, but they aired it a couple of episodes with a couple of us left. Back into what um, he has to say here. So what to do next? I'd like to say it was my idea. I don't know. What I do know is that we had gathered together the most exceptionally gifted horde of writers ready and most willing to take such chances. But finally, the real genesis, I suspect, was the hundreds of veterans we met and interviewed and the thousands of letters we received. They offered the crucial spark, what they said and what they wrote. The Vietnam War was the longest in American history, at least then. The veterans from many different years saw very different wars. Many of the women were volunteers who went out of a simple, powerful desire to serve their country. Whatever tore at the fabric of that belief, and plenty did, they stayed to serve the men, the guys, the grunts, the alive and kicking, the wounded and the dying. What they saw changed their lives. The Vietnam War was not a simple conflict. We continue to argue about its politics and its human costs even today. When these men and women came home, they were ignored. No one was interested in what they had done. They had to bottle up what they had witnessed. They wanted to be accepted for what they were, and the scars they bore, they wanted to heal. This was what was heard in so many of their letters and voices, and it needed to be written about, shared, and experienced. And so we did. Seasons 4's the first episode, The Big Bang, with a deep teleplay by John Wells, brought Booney Lanier with only one leg, but how and why? to Dr. Richard's doorstep in 1985 before casting backwards to Vietnam in 1969. It set up a puzzle and a series of mysteries to be solved. What had happened to these men and women? And the answers weren't always easy. What had happened to KC, played by the wondrous Mark Helgenberger? How had Michael Boatman's Private Samuel Beckett ended up in the GRU in the first place? And where was he now? And McMurphy. What about Colleen McMurphy? Her story was the one that touched the most people and struck closest to the nerve. She had been conceived as a kind of Western heroine, a woman not of words but of silences, and it was this that, brought, that Dana Delaney brought so successfully to the role. The beauty and depth of her performance and her rugged journey into the wilderness and back post-Vietnam was a trek shared by no small number of both male and female veterans. One veteran wrote, Your creation and animation of Colleen McMurphy gave a voice to the thoughts and emotions speechless within me. And another, meeting me and realizing I was part of China Beach, told me, her voice breaking, McMurphy said, I mattered, we all mattered. Vietnam mattered, and, she, and the lives it shaped mattered, and I am thankful somebody finally had the insight and courage to say it for all of us. The crisscrossing of time led to shattering scenes like Casey with her daughter. It led to comic sequences like cross-dressing Dr. Dick Richard, played by perfectly by Robert Picardo, a prop meister if there ever was one, having to decide which tennis balls to use for breasts. More than that, it set such real rich true opposites against one another, the harrowing nearness of war and the aching need for relief. In the finale, Hello, Goodbye, conceived and written as an hour-long episode, the ensemble of actors knew their roles so well that we decided to interview them as their characters, as veterans. They also improvised, often brilliantly and touchingly. I only wish we had the outtakes. 
The wealth of material led us over the grave doubts of the studio and network to expand the episode to two hours with the invaluable help of editor Chris Nelson. This finale was a ratings giant and a nominee for the Emmy, Writers Guild Award, and Humanitas Prize, a nice way to finish. And I should also interject that I believe Dana Delaney won the Emmy for Best Actress in a Drama for this particular season of China Beach. Um, And just a bit of trivia. She won it in 1992, even though the show finished airing in 1991. And that has something to do with the window for eligibility for the Emmy that it put her eligible for that following year. Sacred Young says, At the end, we brought our characters to the wall of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. Such a moving place. The names etched there. In the face of them came the realization that those they and our country lost yet are yet alive. America visits them every day and night as they rest with their 58,000 compatriots. China Beach had a part, however small, in helping those at the wall live and helping us all of us heal. China Beach, here and now, continues to live as well. And that's from John Sackert Young, who is the co-creator and executive producer of the series. So with all that, let's get into a little bit about season four, which um, in a big way takes a place a lot in the present day in what was then the present of, you know, um, well, the present as close to the present as it was is the mid to late 1980s. Uh, the show is being filmed in 1990 or so but we we flash forward to 1985 and then the finale i believe is supposed to be about 1986 or 1987 so it's about gonna be about 20 years um since the premiere episode um in in the first season so we have new characters this season we have a few because of the fact that we have present day things we have way back in the past things and we have uh development over the course of the what was the present day of the of 68 and 69 in vietnam very briefly we have bob robert who is the replacement for dick richard i i think that's actually pretty funny in terms of naming on the on the writer's parts um in in uh at some point in season four uh we see dick's last day in vietnam and then he is uh, McMurphy stays on. She's got more time left in her tour, and she is then working with Bob Robert, who is played by a very young and not white-haired John Slattery. Yes, uh, Roger Sterling. He, like, if you watch the episodes that you see John Slattery in the show, especially there's a scene in finale. You see Roger Sterling. You see how he was, how he worked so well in that role, um, and uh, it's it's he's great. He's great in the show for as little time as he is in there. Um, and what they did was they got a. It's it's not exactly like Dick Richards too, but it is. But there's there's a little bit of difference in the characters. Uh, it, it's a fun it's a fun funny character, and and I like seeing that actor in just about anything. So it's cool. We then get um, Karen, and Karen is really, really important to this entire season because she's kind of the anchor for the whole season. She is Casey's daughter, um, played by Christina Lee, who's been around in a lot of different roles. Uh, people from my generation will remember her as Emily Valentine from the second season of Beverly Hills 90210, uh, which I think was around the same time as this or was going to be, I think, right at, I think actually it was right after this. I think this is the role she had right before it. She also appears in, um, 
she was in a documentary about like underground punk or rock or something that I watched, and I can't remember the name of the documentary, but I remember seeing her in it. But anyway, Karen is essentially the viewer, the younger viewer. Um, over the course of the season, from the beginning all the way to the finale, there's a running thread where she has been looking for her mother because she never knew her mother or she barely knew her mother. Um, we see we see at one point or another that uh, she was a kid when her and her mother were separated in 1975 and she ends up being raised by Booney. And when we first meet her, she's 18. She's about to go to college. And in the finale, she's 20. So a couple of years have gone by. So yeah, the finale takes place in 1987. And what, what this does is that looks to get the story of the Vietnam War and the story of her father and the story of the people in the Five and Dime from the perspective of the next generation down. And uh, there are some really, really strong episodes in there that I'm going to talk about. There is a minor character who who is uh, in the storylines that are set in the 70s and 80s. Her name is Colleen. She is not McMurphy, but she is Dr. Dick's wife. Uh, first fiance and then wife, who is also a doctor. She has to deal with his life. Uh, there are some very funny scenes involving her. It's done with, I think, a little bit of humor and subtlety because he is still haunted by Vietnam, as we see when we see him to uh, kind of having to flash back. But you, we also see that he's done a pretty fairly good job of trying to just put the past behind him. But it does rear its head, and Colleen's there to be there for him and with him, and doesn't necessarily like McMurphy, as we'll see in a couple of episodes that where they do interact. We have uh, Linda, who is played by Finn Carter, whose only other role that I've ever seen her in, or what I know her from, is that she played Nina in How I Got Into College. She was the college recruiter whose uh, boyfriend was played by uh, Anthony Edwards. Linda is Booney's wife. Um, she is the nurse who helped Booney get healthy after he returned from the war as an amputee, and then she ended up marrying him. And They have a few kids together, but they're also raising Karen. We have uh, Joe who is played by Adam Arkin. He is the son of Alan Arkin. Uh, Adam Arkin would make uh, a lot of appearances on dramas and sitcoms, um, and I think he's directed his fair share of uh, television as well. But he was he was one of those guys who popped up quite a bit on dramas and sitcoms in the uh, around this time, in the late 1980s into the early 1990s. He's kind of an every guy, kind of dopey, kind of like a, like a Ray Romano type. But he is McMurphy's husband in the 1980s. We see how they meet, and then as we get into the late of the season, we see that they've been married for a while. Uh, they've got him kind of playing this kind of schlubby guy, but he's also... Um, he's also really nice. He's also very patient and very kind to her. And... He works well in that we see how she has a life with him, and yet he is her life is being affected by her PTSD and um, what conflicts that is creating in their life together. I'm gonna butcher the this next uh, this next name, and and I apologize. The character's name is I believe Trey Ao or Tri Ao, and she's played by a Vietnamese actor named Q Chin. Um, she is the nanny who is hired by Casey to raise Karen when they are living in Saigon. And we do catch up with her toward the end of the show as well when, uh, when Karen is much older. 
Now, like I said, season four is shorter than season three by only about five episodes. So it's the same length as season two. But compared to season three, it has defined story arcs. And this is really important. Um, in my last episode, I talked a little bit about how season three kind of meandered. And I think it's because while there were story arcs, there wasn't like a beginning and we're working to an end over the course of the season. And since this was going to be the last season of the show, they sat down and they settled in and they said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to bring this out. We start with the first two episodes and then we converge in the last two. And they have to do with the various members of the Five and Dime, as, as was in the introduction that I read, both at various times at the beginning and the end of their tours, as well as during the 70s and the 80s. We start with this two-part season premiere called The Big Bang, um, and she sells more than seashells, which is also referred as history parts one and part two. In this episode, we see Booney visit Dr. Dick in 1985. Um, Booney only has one leg. We don't know how yet. Uh, and he is Booney is also with his family, including Karen. This flashes back to 1966 or so when Booney and Dr. Dick first met. And we learn that prior to the first episode of the series, Casey and Booney had a relationship and that Casey was actually pregnant with Karen at the time. Now, the father is either Booney or Lieutenant Colonel Mac Miller, who is played by Wings Hauser. Uh, it's never really fully revealed who the father is. She's playing it so that it's Mac, because Mac is a colonel, and he's got money, so she wants to be kind of a kept woman, or she wants to be taken care of. Uh, but he gets seriously injured in that he is in a helicopter that gets fired on. The bullets come right up through the bottom of the helicopter. And he literally has his, well, I'm going to be crude, but he literally has his balls blown off. And he's sitting there in this stretcher and she has, she says goodbye to him at the end of part two because she, she, doesn't, she just doesn't think that's going to be right for her or something again. You have KC, who's really, really likable, but in the end, is also really, really selfish, Quite can be quite selfish, so it's true to her character. Wingshauser, by the way, Wingshauser is one of those actors who appears on a lot of television. I mentioned 90210 prior, and he has this great role in, in the first cup, in the first season or so, where, where Tiffany Thiessen is Valerie. He's one of those, like, he's also he's also on my favorite season of Roseanne. He was the new neighbor of the dad, and he had a daughter, he had two daughters, um, one was the fat girl and one was the thin girl. The thin girl was played by Danielle Harris, who has been in a number of, I think she's like a ton of the Halloween movies and stuff. I had a total crush on Danielle Harris in the early 90s. And she's kind of the, the outgoing, fast-moving chick. And Wings Hauser is their father. He's got this gruff voice. He lends itself well to the roles he tends to play. Um, kind of the burly guy, brawny guy, and the colonel. And... He plays Mac. Mac's such a smooth talking kind of like, oh man, like there's a line in one of the last episodes of the series where he's being interviewed by Karen and he's asked to describe KC. And he even says like, oh, she was good in bed. And it's it's this funny line, but God, Wingshauser is so good in this role. And he's, he's so good in just about everything I've ever seen him in. But uh, just I have to give him, him credit where credit is due. But he, he goes off, and he'll he'll come back here and there over the course of the season. But the first major storyline is the fact that 
Casey had a daughter that she essentially gave up and then reconnected with after she left China Beach. She gives Karen to Trey Ao, uh, who is considered called a diva. Um, I don't know what the actual like profession there was, but you know Casey was was at least at first was a prostitute, and um, and I think there's a connection there. She takes Karen and raises her in Saigon. Casey eventually does come to see her again. And Karen literally gets on one of the last choppers at the United States Embassy in 1975 when Saigon is falling. Um, and that's the last time she ever really sees her mother. There is a there is an episode where McMurphy and Casey reconnect in the 70s. And we see Casey standing outside of Karen's elementary school and like kind of looking at her and then Booney comes and picks her up because she because Booney eventually raises Karen as I mentioned and then what Karen does as an 18 year old and then into her time as a 20 year old especially in college is that she begins this video project and I'll talk about that in when I'm going to go into depth in the last few episodes of the series the first one of which is called Rewind Casey then becomes in the 70s becomes a businesswoman she relocates to Bangkok uh, she loses everything at one point, and she tries to get back into the United States. She barely gets back into the United States, but then she ends up starting over. And by the end of the series, she's once again successful. The idea that, again, whatever it was in her past that informed her, the fact that she's abused or whatever, the Casey that we've come to know has a heart but it's very guarded she does tend to be very selfish and she's always hustling and that's something that stays with her character through the entire series and again mark helgenberger won at least one emmy i think it may have been two but at least one emmy for playing kc and it really really shows she's a really really strong uh actress and it's a really strong character for her to play uh, we do see other characters over the course of the series with further development um, as we go through 1969. As we go into the uh, into the 70s, Booney, like I said, he gets um, he gets essentially hooked on heroin. He's been dealing drugs, and that's in, in 1969 or so. Things really do get darker and darker as time goes on at China Beach. Um, he loses his leg because he is caught in a terrible Jeep accident, and there's no other way to save him except to amputate the leg. Dodger leaves Vietnam, as we noted. Uh, that was in Season 3, but he ends up going back into Vietnam to help him on Tanyard Village. Uh, there's this episode with Vivek and Linfor, who is also helping him, and she's running the thing. Long story short, he does end up being in Vietnam in the mid-1970s. I think it was about 1974-1975, and walks across a deserted five-and-dime long after everybody's left Vietnam, because the United States pulled out in about 1973. The last episode before the show was ostensibly canceled for the fall season it aired in december was called the call this is goes back into the whole montagnard tribes people um, back in the the 60s with mcmurphy and dodger trying to get them to evacuate it probably is a connection that's where we establish that connection that dodger has later on but also there's a story about frankie having gone back home after her tour was over and trying to be a stand-up comedian in chicago in 1969 
but then running into the trial of the Chicago 7, which is something I covered in a previous episode. And she um, ends up falling with the Black Panthers, and we see that side of the civil rights movement and the civil rights struggle. Lila and Sergeant Pepper, they get married, and then we see Beckett in his past with his father, who was a minister. He shows up his first days in the GRU, but also his future as a history teacher. Um, and he's teaching, as we'll see as we go into the later part of the season, he's teaching kind of the, for lack of a better word, he seems to be teaching the sweat hogs. And so there's this back and forth, this banter between him and his students. But we really have to talk about McMurphy, because like I said, Dana Delaney won an Emmy for her portrayal of McMurphy this season, and it really shows, because hers... She is the main character, of course, but it is the strongest storyline. And funny enough, Karen's story anchors the entire season, and we get bits and pieces of McMurphy and pull more out of McMurphy as we go. And then there are a couple of episodes that really do center on McMurphy as we go later into the season. So she's not in the first episode except for the very last scene. The entire season premiere is from the points of view of Boonie and Dr. Dick and, and their reunion and then Dr. Dick flashing back because after the reunion's over, you know, he Boonie shows up, they have dinner, Boonie leaves with Karen and, and, and that storyline will continue. Um, Dr. Dick wakes up in the middle of the night and goes downstairs and finds his, you know, box full of Vietnam memories and photos and, and as he looks at certain photos, he flashes back to certain times especially toward the beginning of its tour toward the end of that episode the very end he decides to track down mcmurphy and it's like late at night in the middle of the night and he makes a phone call and somebody picks up he asks for colleen mcmurphy or, or that's what her, her name was and we hear the person say on the other line say there was nobody here by that name and they hang up and he just kind of is like okay about it and then we see that the person who answered the phone was her she's in bed with her husband and has graying hair and that's it then we go to credits and it's supposed to hint that there's this something has happened we want to know what happened it's been 20 years why don't they talk to one another where has she been how has she gotten there what's been going on so here are the key parts to that, and um, then I'm going to go ahead and get into a really more in-depth um, look at the final three, four, if you count the last episode as being two parts, episodes of the series, because they, they comprise a really important story arc that really wraps us up nicely and really it really does help encompass almost the entire show in four episodes which is which is really really skillfully done anyway let's look at the key stuff that happens to Mick murphy over the course of the season in 1967 we have an episode where we see her help deliver karen um, and that ties into karen's storyline uh, in 1969 at this point Casey is in Bangkok and she sh and and McMurphy's on leave and basically she drinks her way through a weekend and she's crashing at Casey's and this is supposed to show I guess that things are getting worse for her. In 1970, she returns home and she can't help dealing li with living with her mother. Remember her father died toward the 
um, in an earlier season, she's working at a hospital. So she basically takes off and she's on the road and she's wandering through the, the country really for, for a number of years. In 1972, we have this, she's in Miami. She's working at like a orange processing plant and she's living with this like animal wrangler guy at this really crappy house somewhere like in the swamp but the thing and it's almost comical but at the same time it's like supposed to show that she's been like living really really hard in that dr dick and colleen the fiance who eventually becomes the wife colleen are in miami for like a medical conference or whatever and he's buying orange juice or something at a convenience store and he runs into McMurphy, who is basically a biker chick at this point. And um, this whole thing does not go well. Um, again, she's she gets Colleen really drunk, and there's just this, this resentment built up. And at the end, she leaves Miami. And they go their separate ways, and, and that shows us that that was the last time before 1985 and that phone call at the end of episode one that Dr. Dick and McMurphy ever saw each other or talked to each other. In 1975, she's living in New Mexico near near Indian Reservation. Uh, she confronts a fellow vet about his child abuse. Um, her alcoholism, her continued alcoholism, her developing alcoholism is a running thread through all of the flash forwards and uh, as we go through the um, as we go through the the series. Um, in 1976, she helps Casey get back into the United States after Casey loses everything when she's in Bangkok. She helps her find Karen. Although what's interesting, like I said, is that Casey does not go retrieve her daughter. She just sees that Karen is okay. We see that she's being raised by Booney. And then from there, McMurphy heads to Montana, and Dodger is in Montana. And she, Dodger's like found religion. He wants to help other vets. Um... Dodger has a son named Archie, who was the half-Vietnamese son that he fathered and we saw in season three. Archie, by the way, is played by a very, very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, and I watched that and I'm like, wait, is that who I think it is? And I looked it up and I was right. So JGL made his one of his first career appearances on an episode of China Beach. We find out in that episode that Casey did get back on her feet. Uh, she repays McMurphy for a loan McMurphy had given her. She lives with Dodger. McMurphy lives with Dodger for quite a while. Uh, there's a storyline with involving Dodger's father, who is incapacitated with a stroke. McMurphy's drinking is getting worse and worse and worse. But in the end, she does leave because she realizes that Dodger's found this way to heal through religion, but it's not for her, and she has to find her own way to heal. And and she even says she loves him, but it's just not. This is not the path that she's going on, and it takes a while for her to really heal. In fact, we we see it in 1985 in one of the final episodes of the show that, that she finally has a breakthrough regarding her, her post-traumatic stress disorder. One event that is notable, at least in 1983, we have the fact that she meets Joe at a wedding where he, I believe, is DJing or something and she happens to be a guest or a bridesmaid or something like that. And then by the time we hit 1985, where we have the second to last episode of the series, McMurphy and Joe have been married. Um, he's an architect and uh, she's in hospital administration. So, which, by the way, um, 
on some level, a lot of this, which I think I watched before I read Home Before Morning by Linda Vandervanter, but there is a lot of back and forth between the book and the series at this point. You can see where they grabbed a lot from the source material. I believe there's one episode that takes place in Plaiku, which is where Vandervanter was stationed. And I think there is a reference to a character just like a where there's a supporting character or, or a background character with the name Vandervanter in it. So they acknowledge the source material and you can see where they're pulling from it. Um, and like I said, if, if you listen to my episode about Home Before Morning and, and haven't had a chance to check it out, I would go track it down. It is an excellent, excellent memoir. But now what I want to do is take a look at the last three episodes of the show in a little bit more detail because this entire season is its own big story arc with Karen's searching for her mother and bringing kind of everybody together with and without Booney's help. And then McMurphy and what we see how she got to the point where when Dr. Dick calls her at the end of the season premiere, like how did she get there? And we're seeing that. So we have episode 14 of the, of the season, which is called Rewind. This does not have a single scene that takes place in Vietnam. It is all taking place in the present of what I think at that point would have been about 1987. And uh, because Karen is, is home from college on a break. So, and so we will flash forward to about 1988 or so, 87, 88 for the reunion in the final episode. But this is shown through tons of footage of the lens of Karen's video project. She's taking a communications class at college and she's decided to do a project that is both about Vietnam and both about her searching for her mother. And we're going for this sort of documentary feel of vets, but doing what would become a trope in a number of shows and movies of this era. Uh, I think of, I automatically go to Reality Bites, where Lelena is is doing all of that footage of her friends. Of here's all these people trying to survive, being out of college and Generation X in the early '90s with a recession. We can't find jobs and everything. And we've seen it on other other shows and things. And and I think by the time you you hit, especially those the found footage horror era, it has become a bit of a trope or a cliche. But back then. It wasn't as commonly used, and it's really, really done well for a couple of reasons. One, when they show the footage that Karen has shot, and this is like a little thing, but they actually shot it with a camcorder. Like, she's walking around with a camcorder, and she's got one of the big ones. My parents had one of them, too, those big ones that took a full tape. She's walking around with one of them and shooting it. She has a tripod set up and everything, so she's got equipment, and she's... she's they show her working on this thing in a way that you would expect a student to be working on it. And the footage, the interview footage they shot, they went out and shot with that camcorder. And then they have the footage of Booney on television or, or these people on television while she's watching television and they've pointed the camera at the television. So it has that weird camera feel to it. It's an authenticity thing that I really appreciated about the show. Not only that, I'm... 99% sure that the producers or even Christina Lee with the producers went around with Karen in character to like streets in a local mall surrounding the greater Hollywood Los Angeles area and asked the people what they knew about Vietnam because there's young people older people people my parents age people my age answering these questions and some of the people are incredibly ignorant some of the people aren't and um, I really really liked it 
because we don't necessarily know what, you know, like not everybody necessarily knows everything because they don't learn a lot of things in history class. And this is like 10 years after, 15 years after the war ended. And they're already getting people who are like, uh, wasn't that during like the 19th century, the 1800s? I mean, so it's a really, really real episode that I, that I appreciated. I appreciated seeing that. Christina Lease, by the way, is really good in her role as Karen. And I have to give her credit because her role as Emily Valentine on 90210 was kind of laughable at times. But when she is given something to work with, she seems to rise to the material. And she's not lost in the material. Yeah, there's some scenes where she's probably a little bit out of her league. But at the same time, like... I, I, she's very, very believable as Karen, and she's very, very believable as somebody who is hurt and searching and searching for answers and doesn't necessarily know where they are. We do get some flashbacks in this episode. We get Karen coming to Booney's house in the United States, so this is centering around her as opposed to, say, Booney or Dr. Dick or McMurphy or somebody. And, I, and again, I'm going to give um, some credit to the set design, the hair and makeup people throughout this entire season, especially this episode, in, in that when they have stuff set in the 70s, they make it look like it was set in the 70s without making it look like a Sounds of the 70s commercial or something. You know, it's not like they have a giant sign that says disco or something, but the hair, the house, the house and everything, like... It all looks like it could have been taking place in about 1975 or 1976. This is a silly comparison, but bits and pieces of the scenes from Karen's childhood in in these episodes of China Beach in the United States make me think of like that somebody in the production crew watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind and paid real attention to the way that the Neary's house was decorated or the clothes they were wearing or things like that. It feels authentic to me. And and I wasn't alive in the 70s. I was born in the late 70s, so I wouldn't remember any of that. Uh, I do remember the early 80s on some level, though. Anyway, Booney and her have this back and forth about the project. She's standoffish. Uh, she turns the camera on him. They end up talking for like four hours about Vietnam. She goes to see Beckett at school. He's got this rowdy class of sweat hogs, and they ask him, hey, did you ever kill somebody? And he tells this story about the person he killed, and you see the class get like really quiet around him. And she goes to see Mac, Wings Hauser. He's now like a general. He stayed, and he talks about his injury a little bit, and he has that line about Casey being good in bed. And like I said, Wingshauser is really good at playing those charming yet gross guys. Like it's just it's it's a well done, funny scene. But at the same time, again, this is where this show mixes pathos with humor really, really well. And it's a good catch up episode for for everyone. Um, Karen literally is going across the United States, and I think there's a line in there uh, where she sees um, Pepper and Lila. And says that uh, she says that she's taking a quarter off because Pepper's giving her crap about he's in his auto repair shop with her car and he's giving her crap about the fact that she dropped out of college. So we have a really realistic um, explanation as to how the hell she has so much time if she's a college student to work on this project. So the idea that it's not necessarily a class project anymore, but a passion project for her is done and it's done in a way that's 
deftly handled. It's like one line. We don't need a ton of exposition about it or a fight with her father or anything like that. Lila has this great point when they go to interview her and we see how that that Pepper's like coughing a lot and things. And then later in, in the finale, she will reveal in the interview that he has lung cancer, but it's not spoken of in the interview with Karen in the episode Rewind. But she says to, to Karen, she gives her a piece of advice saying that what you're doing when you're talking to these people about stuff is that you're stirring things up. And after you leave and go on to the next person, these things are going to be stirred up for people. And she's not chastising her. She's just pointing out a reality. And it's good that she does that because um, they're very, very painful memories. And it speaks to how we process and deal with pain. And the episode, I have to say, takes its time. It's not too exposition heavy. I mean, we've seen Karen all season. We know what she's about. We know what she's doing, so we don't have to do it. But she, like an amateur filmmaker, like somebody who's just shooting things with a camera quarter... There's not a lot of cuts. They let her. They let her almost like shoot the episode herself in some way. And there's not a lot of crazy cuts. There's not a lot of overbearing music in places. It's just. It's an approach almost like, not completely cinema verite, but almost a, do- a documentary approach. An approach of taking a step back with the camera, and letting the scene play out, and trusting the actors and the writing. And and it's done really really well. This is uh, really especially prevalent in a scene where she finds her mother's younger sister who is living um, in the Midwest and is really, really nice when she shows up. She makes the jokes about how um, her and her family are all like boring Midwestern Swedes and um, her sister's a redhead just like KC was. She gives a little bit of autobiographical information and talks a little bit about her, about, you know, KC, but shows her some pictures Karen asks if she can keep them and then um, they drive to the area like where they grew up or near where they used to live and Casey had left and the younger sister was about eight years younger and she's standing there at this fence looking at this place and you can see her having gone from this very nice, pleasant woman who welcomed this girl into her home to kind of like really just, she's smoking a cigarette and she's like really just in pain because she's digging up these demons from her past, the abuse that Casey suffered from her father, the fact that Casey did her best to protect her. She sent her money. She was trying to keep her father away from her, even though she wasn't there. And um, it's a characterization of, of Casey who Karen has never met through these conversations and the actress who does it, does it really, really well. And it's, it's not like all of a sudden she goes from like being really nice to Karen to being like really mad at her or anything. We just see the, 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 these things have been stirred up as, as I said, and they're still stirred up and, and all the pain is coming back and everything that haunts her is coming back. And it's allowed to play without too much added on to it. And it's a really hard scene to watch at times. Um, And it speaks to the strength of this show. And knowing that there are three episodes left, um, including this one, it's a great setup for the ending of the series. It gives Booney this idea 
for the reunion that is the final episode it is catharsis in a way for everyone except mcmurphy Uh, mcmurphy she does interview mcmurphy but mcmurphy can't make it through the interview she gets upset and she's like look i can't do this um because she's she's just again the next episode shows like how much she's denying and how much she is just suppressing and repressing and things like that and it ends with karen talking to her mother on camera she's trying to conclude and um airing her grievances and she has a line at the end where she basically says this isn't over and that's where the episode ends and it's really important because in the next episode we have a similar line at the end the idea that things are always unfinished about vietnam and things are always unfinished for a lot of these people. And that's what she's discovering. Now, episode 15 is called Through and Through. This is the penultimate episode. This is Dana Delaney's spotlight episode. This is where you do see in a big way that this is why she got an Emmy. We start out at a racquetball court. She's playing Joe. And uh, she and Adam Arkin have some good chemistry. There's a lot of good back and forth banter between them. And uh, she beats him in, in racquetball, of course. And she goes to shower. He uh, he stays on to play his friend. And she's up in uh, the kind of the galley area, the main area of the gym of the racquetball club while they're in the racquetball court below. And if you've ever been on a racquetball in a gym like that, there's glass, like plexiglass, where you really can't hear anybody, especially in this deep racquetball court. And she's watching them. And you hear the the bounce of the racquetball off the wall, the bounce of the racquetball off the wall, the bounce of the racquetball off the wall. And then you start to see it mixed in with the sound of artillery shells and the sound of artillery shells. And eventually she starts seeing little clips of something that happened to Vietnam, something that happened in Vietnam. She gets more panicked and panicked and panicked. And she starts banging on the glass. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And they can't hear her because they're playing racquetball and you really can't hear anybody through that. But in the background, you see the people. There's three or four people in the gym who are... The crowd hasn't gathered. They're just kind of stopped and looking at her like, what is up with this woman? And eventually, when there's a stop and play, uh, Joe looks up and she's like banging the wall and then she sits down and she's sitting on the, the, the bench, embarrassed and, and, and trying to figure out what has just happened. And, and then we see her in therapy. And she's been in therapy for a while because the problem that she's been having is that Joe and her are having trouble conceiving a child. And there's a there's also a, a um, being that this is about 1985 or so. There's also a a, a note that she's probably about 40 ish or so, and that she knows that she's a little old to be conceiving a child. But you can see that she's also avoiding the topic of Vietnam. Um, she, what she's trying to do is getting a is to get a prescription for antidepressants and she names the medicine the doctor says well you know people the reason i don't necessarily just dole those out is because a lot of people do try to use them for overdoses and and mcmurphy's like oh i didn't realize that and that actually does kind of line up with linda vandevanter's book where she knew exactly what drugs to take and what amount to take in order to kill herself by swallowing pills uh she because that's one thing she had considered at one point. Delaney plays McMurphy's fake confidence very well. She makes wise cracks. She's dismissive of certain things that Norma, the, the psychologist, is going at. But she does get into Vietnam, and we see that it has affected her. 
And she eventually gets in there and starts crying over something that happened in the war. And she can't necessarily figure out what it is. But we will find later that she um, visits, she's given a referral to a vet support group. Um, But before that, we have this recurring bit where McMurphy kicked the bottle about five years prior. And she said she did it by herself. She's always been an I can do this by myself type of character. And we see her go to a bar, have the bartender, who she knows personally at this point, pour her a shot. She kind of works her finger around the rim. She smells the bourbon. He puts out a pitcher, and she pours the shot back into the pitcher. This will come up later. Before that, she goes to the vet support group. And um, she sees the guy, she sees one of the guys there. Um, He's not the guy that she was referred to, but he's a different guy. And they start talking. And what's interesting is that he thinks, and I like this, he thinks she's a spouse. And it's it's just, it's it's a reflex. It's a default behavior because the vast majority of of vets of, of Vietnam are men. But at one point she says something, he says, you sound like a vet. And then she's just like, you know what, I'm out of here. And then he, it, it finally clicks. It's like, holy crap, she was in the war. And he walks out to the parking lot. And he said, where were you stationed? She says, you know, China Beach, at, um, you know, 510th EVAC. And he holds out his hand. He says, welcome home. And uh, then we go her, to her in the support group. And we see these, she's in surrounded by other vets and they're telling their stories and she starts to talk about a time when um the five and nine was attacked and she had to dig out some troops who were in a building that got shelled then they show her arguing with her therapist and she talks to joe about the therapy there's just there's a really good rhythm there's a back and forth between the, the, the group and the therapist, uh, the fact that she has to get her VA physical because she's going to go on disability for the PTSD, and her back and forth with Joe. There's a lot of really good married rhythm. Like, you believe that these two people are married, and it's it's really, really well written, um, like they were pulling from another show at the time, 30-something. Like they were pulling a little bit from that as well, the show, her McMurphy and Joe, and uh, the the over dramatic parts are a little bit scenery chewing. There's a scene where uh, there's a scene later on where McMurphy gets pissed at Joe and she like smashes his drum set and stuff. And uh, Delaney, I think, is might be having a little. I don't know if it's fun, but she's she's kind of going a little overboard with it. But at the same time, it's. Uh, it, it, it's an it's almost natural. Like it, I I see these things happening. And I believe that they're married. She goes to group therapy again. And there's a really, really great scene in here. Because all the other vets are talking about their bad moments uh, in the here and now. Like, what happens when they encounter somebody? You know, um, something triggers them. And in one case, uh, one guy's talking about how he yelled at a Vietnamese kid who was, like, delivering his food or something. And he was calling him a, you know, pardon my my language here, he's calling him a gook. And how he was just laying into this kid and laying into this kid and how um, and how somebody got basically into a road rage incident. And there's one guy who's, like, dad was in World War Two, and the other vets put him down. And so they're not shying away from these issues, the issues that the vets were facing. And, and they're doing it in a way, again, that they're just letting these men tell their stories. And, and they get to McMurphy and she gets into this thing about how what she saw and what she keeps seeing 
and she's just like it's just this rep and, and the idea here is that as a nurse it was just this repetitive never ending traffic of people into the ER into the triage and I'm trying to get you I kept telling you I remember your name and I, I kept telling you that that you would be okay and and she has this great line of you made me lie and you quit on me and she's getting more and more upset and the, the tension in the scene is building and there's not a lot of music and there's not, I don't think there's any music in the scene and there's no cuts and you're just in there with her and she's just getting more and more and more upset and you think it's a breakthrough but then she goes to see her therapist and she just basically tries to quit she's like okay well that was good and now I'm done I'm fixed now which is totally like her character and there are a lot of, I, I know people like that who it's like and i tend to be like that sometimes it's like okay we fixed the problem we're moving on and then the person who you're talking to is like no we haven't this is a long-term thing this isn't just a band-aid and that's when she picks that fight with joe when she gets home because she finds that the dr dick called and he actually talked to her for a little bit him for a little bit and and then she just goes off on him and she's got this line where she's like i don't know why we're having trying to have a child i already have a child because he's playing his drums or whatever. It's crazy dramatic. It's a little scenery chewing. But what I love is, A, I've had that fight. B, Adam Arkin kind of just doesn't escalate the argument. He just kind of sits there and takes it and watches it. And you get the sense that they've had this fight before, that she's yelled at him before, and he understands that there's something behind this that maybe he's he's just very patient about or maybe he knows that she he has to come to his she has to come to her own terms on it or, or something there's something that has been going on for a while between these two and we're just getting a, a snippet of it um i think that's what the the power in that scene is and that's why they have such that's why i, I what i like about them and then uh she has this this kind of funny scene with, where she has to get her physical done and she's with a few World War II vets and there's some really good humor in there uh the back and forth but then we finally get the truth behind this flashback that she's been having the one that keeps triggering her China Beach was getting shelled this is right around Tet um um Hires was still alive cuz he's in the scene this is his one appearance in season 4 and they go back into they go into this bunker and all the patients are in the bunker and she makes a joke about having to go get beer and she leaves the bunker and runs into hires and then turns around and the place gets blown to bits and that's where we saw her trying to dig them out and then she's in therapy with the um with Norma the, the therapist and starts to remember things how they really were and and realizes that no hires went to get the beer she went to go get hires she turned around the bunker got blown up and then what she's really upset about and what she blamed him for she says i never really spoke to him again and then he died was that she wanted to go right in there and get those guys out and hires was like no it's too dangerous and he held her back and she blamed him for the time between when the bunker explosion happened and when she actually went for the bodies because by then they were bodies they weren't just people she couldn't have saved them it's a really really dark moment of regret and guilt and you see mcmurphy crying and crying and crying over the course of this therapy session 
And again, Delaney really sells the moment. And not only that, and this is this is what um this is what I really like about it. It's this little detail. She's crying, tears streaming down her face, mascara running a little bit. And at one point, Delaney sticks her tongue out and, and licks one of the tears off of her face. And then she keeps going. And it's that little detail that I really like because she's not like overselling the crying. There's no point where she asks for a tissue or she's like wiping away the tears all dramatically or anything. In fact, I don't think she even puts her hands to her face at all. But the, the, the kind of like her sticking out her tongue, licking the tear and then keep telling the story. It's really natural. It's really authentic in terms of, you know, being in this conversation, in the situation. And she has a line that echoes the last line of the previous episode where she looks at the last line of the episode is her looking teary at her therapist saying, is this ever going to stop? And we're supposed to realize, and I think we do realize that that's her breakthrough. That in the previous moment at the group therapy where she was crying and talking to these guys, she thought she had a breakthrough. She thought it was fixed. But by saying, is it ever going to stop? That's the one. That's the moment where she realizes how long-term this is and how she's going to keep having to talk about it and keep having to deal with it and keep having to confront it. And then maybe the healing can begin. And we see more and more of that healing and how far she's progressed in the finale. Uh, the present, like I said, is 1988 or so. Booney has put together a reunion at like some big hotel in Youngstown, Ohio. One of those big hotel slash catering places, you know, really fancy place. All of a bunch, most of the characters. Um, like I said, Holly is not there and everybody else is. And um, like John Sackert Young said in what I read is that what they did was for the course of the reunion... They turned the camera on the characters and they did basically vets or rewind, but vets especially, um, even using the same black background and stuff. Um, they did it with those people in character, with Karen being the interviewer. So we've kind of come full circle on everything. Everything has come together. The One of the big flashbacks um, that we haven't seen from McMurphy is Vietnam on her last day there. Her real last day there. Because remember, her last day there was supposed to be the first episode and then she re-upped. Here it is her last day. We did see her come home and everything. And we get this number of flashbacks. And I always love seeing John Slattery, by the way. But we get a number of flashbacks and clips. and Which is a final episode trope that was prevalent through the 80s and 90s. Where we would have basically a clip show as the final episode. Which works on some levels in some shows and doesn't in others. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't work. It's like you save the final episode for a, for a clip show. In this case, it really does. She talks about a boy she can't forget, and we keep flashing back to that, and the boy is this guy who was in a tank that crashed into the five and dime because they'd been hit. They couldn't get the evac chopper out there, so they drove their way in, and they get everybody out of the tank, and most of the guys are dead, but this guy isn't. They've got this big inflatable thing around his stomach and groin area because it's it's keeping the blood from, like, he's basically keeping him from bleeding out. His spinal cord's been severed. He's played, by the way, by Neil McDonough, who has been in a number of different movies, a Minority Report. He played Dum Dum Dugan in um, Captain America movies. So 
as I said on Twitter, I think a couple weeks ago, we have Lois Lane and Howard Stark trying to save the life of Dum Dum Dugan in an episode of China Beach. It's this whole thing about like, you know, who do you remember? Why do you remember? I keep thinking about these, these guys, these kids and McDonough's character is this guy whose uh, name was uh, nickname was Lurch. And um, he's, he loved football, you know, that sort of thing. And he just keeps talking about it, keeps talking about it. And they keep coming back to that moment through the whole episode. When we're at the reunion, we see how these characters have progressed since we last saw them in the present day. McMurphy does have a daughter now named Maggie, who was incidentally played by Robert Picardo's actual daughter. Casey is not at the reunion, even though she was invited. Delaney... (laughs) I love the way Dana Delaney acts Colleen McMurphy, especially through the reunion, where especially when she gets there, she looks awkward... She looks uncomfortable. There's a funny, awkward moment of the reintroduction of Colleen McMurphy and Colleen Richards, Dr. Dick's wife, um, who haven't seen each other since that night in the 1970s where one got the other drunk. We flash back to that as well. So it's clever. It's awkward. You can see this weird tension between the two of them. Um, The interviews with the cast members do serve as a great gateway to flashbacks and these clips. It allows for one last bit of further character development in our final episode. Dick has a reunion with Waylou Marie Holmes where it's, it's totally like, here's these old lovers. I hate to use that word, but it's because it's such a 70s soft rock word, but who's these two people who had a relationship and they were, they were uh, together when they were in Vietnam together and uh, it's, it is one of those, like, hey, you look good. And, and there's still a little bit of sexual tension between them. She gives him a quick kiss. And the entire scene, you see his wife out of focus, just in the background, just kind of leaning against the pillar where they're standing in front of. Not pissed off or anything, just kind of standing there and listening. And then when Waylu leaves, Colleen comes up to Dick and says... I have a question. Is there a woman here you haven't slept with? And it's such a great line. It's so well delivered and it made me laugh out loud. Again, Slattery is Roger, a young Roger Sterling. Um, in fact, there is <laughs> there is this, this scene where, where Colleen and Dr. Bob see each other again. And Colleen says, oh, is this your daughter? And because he's got two blondes standing next to him and he points the blonde on the on his left and says no this is my daughter the blonde on the right is his wife and Colleen says oh well she could be your she could be her sister and the the, the wife says yeah we're sorority sisters like okay and then Colleen kind of walks off and then Dr. Dick walks up to him and they have the exact same exchange like word for word the exact lines and Dick walks off with this like look on his face like oh my god like um and and it's a very very funny well-played line and like i said john slattery even then was born to play roger sterling again the i I, i'm gushing about this episode um the the flashbacks hit a lot of highlights from the whole series they're directly connected to the characters and what they're interviewing you about if you're coming into this as a new viewer and I know it's stupid to say, I don't know why you'd come into the final episode as a new viewer, but they love to hype last episodes of series. And this aired in the middle of the summer, and it was a ratings bonanza, so it means that 
there probably were a fair amount of people who had never seen the show before and saw, hey, final episode of China Beach Night. And some people, like, I'm one of those people who will sometimes watch a series finale because they're kind of fun to watch. I'm kind of curious to see how things wrap up. Or a lot of times it's a show I hadn't watched in years, and I'm like, oh, I want to see how this ends. And in this case, I think that was the case. And what that what you have here is actually an episode that is almost self-contained in that the flashbacks provide enough background for you that you get who these characters are. And if you're interested, you can go back and watch the rest of the show, especially now since it's on DVD. But if you're not, you get a full story in the final episode. And uh, that's, that's really important and it's really, really well done. The reunion winds on. The reunion is about the first half or first two two thirds of the show. We have a scene where Frankie and Dodger sing "When a Man Loves a Woman." Dodger kind of mooning over McMurphy. Um, a lot about what they carry with them. I should mention that the hair and makeup department and the costume department did a pretty good job at flashing everybody forward, except for Lila Garreau. Um, Conchetta Tomei in, in at least in 2013, when they showed the footage from the reunion they had at the Paley Center, looks uh, looks really good for being 20 years older than she was in the show. Uh, they gave her, and in this in the second to last, no, in the rewind episode, they gave her. Um, they just aged her a little bit, gave her some gray in the hair and everything. Here they have her wearing like a Sophia Petrillo wig, which just doesn't look good on her. Um, I, I realize that perms were a thing in the 80s, but I think they, they, they messed up with the hair there. But otherwise, everybody looks pretty well. They give Dana Delaney this 80s, middle 40s mom haircut that I'm pretty sure my mom had at one point or another, and it and so somebody in the costume and makeup and, and all the design department was paying a lot of attention and uh, and did a great job with, with, with at least her. We have Bob being the old grizzled vet trying to tell these stories of World War II and Nam. Um, I like that we have this character um, because, again, we have these flashbacks of this guy who is older than everybody. He's more conservative than everybody. And we have a sing-along when they're all that settle down for a group picture where Booney starts the I'm Fixin' to Die rag by Country Joe and the Fish. And they sing it, and then Bob starts singing America the Beautiful, and it goes on and on, and they all sing it. And it's a little on the nose. It's a little silly. It's a little cheesy. Not silly, cheesy. But, I don't know. It works for the scene. And then when the reunion is over, Booney, Dodger, and McMurphy have a moment themselves, and they come up with this idea to drive to Washington, D.C. And we cut next to a rest stop, and they're all going, like all the main cast members. And um, we flash back to the interview that Karen did with McMurphy and the last time that we Casey saw Karen in the 70s, and McMurphy talks to Karen one-on-one. She tells her a little bit about what Casey was like, she also says that she understands why she actually has fond memories of it, or at least she how she felt alive back then, like how she actually loved it in some way, which is weird. And it's, it's a really good moment. 
Uh, in the car on the way there, Karen McMurphy talks some more about that boy she mentioned in the beginning, this guy Lurch, played by Neil McDonough, and they're gonna, you know, they were trying to keep him in good spirits, and basically we get a little bit more of, of what McMurphy's life was like at the end of Vietnam and then trying, trying to get home, and she voices over as she's leaving about the day that she left. She says how the day she left, everything was exactly the same except for her. Uh, which is, again, another sentiment that we've seen several times in the show and in, in like, Van Vanter's book. So the climax of the episode is their visit to the wall. It's completely without dialogue. Uh, there are scenes that are shut in distance. There are close-ups on the actors' faces. They play the Michael McDonald song, I Can Let Go Now, over that. It might be heavy-handed in parts, and I was thinking that the first time I saw it, and then the second time I watched it. I came to realize that um, it is a little heavy-handed in parts, but I think the show has earned that. Some shows don't earn that. China Beach earns the entire last, like, 10, 5, 10 minutes of this series where they're at the wall. We finally get a resolution at the end of Casey, who is in Washington, D.C., meeting with, with some Japanese businessmen. Booney comes to see her. Now, he has a mustache in this scene, and I don't think he had a mustache earlier in the episode, so I, I think that's a continuity error, or that it's meant to be earlier or whatever. But the long story short, and I just kind of let it go for the sake of, of the story. The long story short is that he tells her that Karen's been looking for her. He tells Casey where they're staying. He wants her to see her daughter. Then we have everybody saying goodbye to each other in D.C. as they all leave, and the only ones left are basically... Um, Casey and, and McMurphy. The song Try and Love Again by the Eagles is playing over this. And finally, the limo pulls up. Um, it's Casey's limo as, as McMurphy's standing there uh, right by her car, and they're about to drive off. And, and uh, McMurphy says, you know, I have something to do. And so she heads off with her daughter, and Casey and Karen have a reunion, and they talk for a little bit. And it's tense but it's like it's an awkward tension it's not there's not a lot of rage and or there's not any anger but there's not also this sort of syrupy maudlin oh i missed you i love you one of them wants something some closure and she even says and you know if karen's half joking or not she says i could at least could you just send me a christmas card or something like in other words she's accepted and she had gone to see trayon in, in an earlier part of the uh in an earlier episode where we're you know, she seems to have come to accept the fact that even reconnecting with her mother doesn't mean this woman's going to be her mother. And um, but at the same time, she wanted to see this woman because she never knew this woman. And they hug. And the last thing that Casey says to Karen is, I'm not very good at writing letters. It's very true to Casey's character, but it's really heartbreaking because then she leaves and that's really it for that storyline. It's left unresolved in a way, but at the same time, it's wrapped up, which, again, it's the show. The show does that well. It, it's, it's all these things that we have in our lives that are going to keep going on. It's never going to end, you know, as we've seen in the last couple of episodes. Our final scene... We hear the harmonica from the end um, that we always usually hear. It's, it's a recurring theme of the show. We see McMurphy with her daughter Maggie uh, returning to the wall towards sunset. 
the crew, the lighting, the camera uses the reflection of a person in the wall to its advantage. And uh, she and her daughter point some names out. And then she opens up a bag and it's full of sand from China Beach, which is something she had mentioned earlier in the episode. And she leaves it there at the wall. And it's a very quiet and poignant and a very earned moment, earned final moment for the series. And um, her final words are voiced over. Uh, She says, I remember his name, and she goes into a little bit about this guy, Lurch, and she says, I couldn't save them all, but I saved some. I thought I'd forgotten, then I remembered. He said that I would. Uh, The end credits shot, and the end credits through the series were always uh, typical network series and credits at the time there was a theme playing over still clips of uh scenes from that episode but this is just one it's uh the wall on your left the washington monument in sunset in shadow in the center and booney standing on the hill far away uh in shadow as the um harmonica theme plays and and were played out and uh, overall, the season is spectacular. This finale is spectacular. The last final episodes of these shows, spectacular. The show itself is is absolutely amazing. And for a show that was on its way out to be canceled because of low ratings, to have the chance to do a finale like that and really hit all the important emotional beats that it, like I said, earned over the course of the four seasons that it had, especially this last season, it's amazing. And I would put it up there as one of the best series finales I've ever seen. Bonus features on the DVD. I'm going to wrap up in a moment here. I know this has been a long episode, a little bit of a double-sized episode here, but I, I think that uh, I think that it really, really, the subject matter really, really warrants it. Uh, the bonus episodes are a featurette called Memories of War, The Lasting Impact of China Beach, where they look a little bit at the legacy of the show, as well as more interviews with Robert Picardo and, and John Wells. And there is a bonus if you got the box set. The box set's really cool looking. Um, uh, it's a five-disc box set. That's uh, Sorry, it's a five. It's four seasons and a – there's multiple discs. Four seasons and a bonus features um package and the bonus features has a book that has everybody's autograph on them and it is basically the 25th anniversary reunion at the Paley Center out in um, Los Angeles with featurettes of uh, reflections of cast and characters reuniting uh, sorry creators and cast reuniting uh, a little bit of the discussions of the origin the legacy of China Beach China Beach and the war recollections some of them are redundant I didn't watch all of them because as I was watching them I had seen them on other interview pieces on the individual DVD season DVDs but then there are some other new stuff so um, just know that if you end up buying the box set and you watch all the bonus features on the seasons uh, when you hit the bonus features disc you're going to see a lot of stuff that you've already seen but I am going to wrap us up for this episode and read one letter that was written to uh, John Sacker Young and and the uh, and the writers um, there are some others there are some bits and pieces of things I'm going to read a couple of blurbs we have one that said I never saw my dad cry all my life and he came up to me in his overalls and he had these tears and he said I have four sons and I sent my send my daughter off to war 
that was um, from Diane Carlson's Evans or the 71st EVAC Ply Coup, who was in 1968. I wanted to talk about it all the time, but when it was only when I had run into someone who had been there and we just we find that connection and we just start spilling it out, all the stories and the feelings about it. Most people didn't want to talk about it. That was Sharon Simmons. And the letter I'm going to read is from Michael W. Schaus, S-C-H-A-U-S. Dear Sir, the November 29th, 1989 episode of China Beach was the finest hour of television I have ever watched. The second part is awaited with great anticipation. I am a Vietnam vet and it's been a long time since I've cried as much as Wednesday night. The process of catharsis for me reached a level only equal to my first visit to the wall in Washington. I would like to purchase a transcript of both parts of this episode. Please inform me of my cost and my, my budget. I will check immediately. Send a check immediately. Thank you for the series. It has improved the self-esteem of vets immensely. And um, so, again, the show did a lot um, It. it for people who really, really enjoyed it. It showed a perspective of women in the war that we don't necessarily get. And uh, that is why I decided to cover it over these four or five episodes, if you count the episode I did about Linda Vandervander's memoir. Because uh, we don't always get that perspective when we're looking at the Vietnam War because of the fact that the majority of people who went over and fought were men, young men. Uh, so... China Beach is available on DVD. It's not available for streaming anywhere at the moment, I believe. Um there have been music rights issues for years that have held held up its original DVD release anyway, but you can find individual seasons on places like Amazon and eBay uh, for pretty cheap, and you may be able to come across the box set at a pretty cheap uh, rate or even even retail. It's it's expensive for a DVD box set, but but it's well worth the purchase. That'll do it for me. Next episode, I will be back with regular coverage of the NOM. I'm going to be talking about issue number 76. So until then, don't forget that my Twitter is popaff. That's at P-O-P-A-F-F. Leave an iTunes review and send me an email. And as always, thank you again for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.